0: Coming to you via the internet and your friends at PipesMagazine.com, it's the Pipes Magazine radio show. The show that is so bad it can't even turn warm goat piss into cold. Now I invite you to sit back, relax, the smoking lamp is lit. Here's your host, Brian Levine. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It is the Pipes Magazine radio show. Yes, the sometimes irreverent, sometimes educational, but always entertaining weekly pipe-smoking broadcast. And I am your host, Brian Levine, coming to you uh, early pre-recorded. Early, early, early. Yeah, it's Thursday. And uh, the reason why is we're uh, squeezing one more week down at Disney World in on our annual passes, so... Uh, not much of a mailbag tonight. In fact, not much of one at all. Uh, but on tonight's show, Pipe Parts is going to be about Meersham pipes because my guest is Ben Rappaport, and we are going to take a deep a deep dive into uh, the history of Meersham pipes and uh, what makes uh, what makes them collectible. And we got I mean, it's it's a It's just barely tipping the iceberg of Ben's knowledge on the subject, but it'll give you enough to uh, understand some of the history of Meerschaum and uh, also, you know, kind of how not to go bad on uh, making a Meerschaum pipe purchase, so all that coming up, uh, music by request and uh, in a rant, all that coming up on tonight's episode of the Pipes Magazine radio show, Uh, so As I said, uh, I'm at Disney World again, and the reason is uh, we bought annual passes last February when we were going down there because we knew at that point we were going to be down there for uh, a total of 11 days in February and March, and the annual pass, if you go over about eight or nine days at Walt Disney World, the annual pass is a savings at that point, so... We're uh, squeezing in another trip, doing it, uh, doing it during the festival of the arts. So hopefully, I will have posted a whole bunch of pictures to my Facebook page. So uh, follow me there. Um, remember, if you're listening to this show, you must be of legal smoking age wherever you are. So there you go. All right, let's uh, let's get going with this. Everybody, sit back, relax, fire up a bowl. Thank you all for tuning in, and here we go. Welcome back to a special episode of the Pipes Magazine Radio Show, and it's special because Ben Rappaport is back with us. And Ben, I'm gonna I, I'm gonna call you the noted historian, Doctor of Pipes, and author of many many books on pipes and tobaccos. And you know what? You're you really are. And I don't. Yeah, I. I I don't say this uh, often, but you are a jewel in the pipe collecting hobby. So, Ben, thank you for coming back, and uh, welcome back to the Pipes Magazine radio show.
1: Well, Brian, thanks for welcoming me back. I mean, this is phase two of my life, right, on audio? Yeah. <laughs> uh, thanks for the, for the kind words. Um, I don't accept them lightly because I'm just another collector who enjoys writing.
0: And uh, and some writing you have done, but you're you're back because I got a request from a listener named Steve who wanted to know more about Meersham, and there is uh, nobody better in this country that I know of to talk to about. So we're going to dedicate this whole episode, pipe parts in the uh, regular interview segment, to talking about the history of Meersham. The different types of Meerschaum. morgan it's going to be a deep dive so let's get into it and uh, can you just tell us when was when was Meersham first used for a pipe
1: okay tough question to answer i mean i want to disabuse the listeners of the story that they probably read in most american books about the history of tobacco pipes and more particularly about almost all the books in european languages that describe the uh, let's say, the evolution of, of Meerschaum as a type material. Uh, the story about Karl Kovacs, the so-called cobbler and wood pipe carver of Pest, Hungary, has never been proved. And it's generally accepted, though, that sometime in the um, mid-1700s, a certain count found two pieces in Turkey, and turned them over to Karl Kovacs, and he carved two pipes, one of which he gave to the ambassador and the other one of which supposedly he smoked and then later gave it to the National Museum of Hungary in Budapest. It's been disproved. <laughs> so all we can accept is some sometime in the mid-18th century, somewhere in Hungary... People started getting these lumps of raw mushroom from Turkey, and someone started carving them. That's the best that I can do. If I went to court, I had to swear on a on a Bible that that's the best that I know after studying this field for more than 50 years. (laughs) Uh, The the earliest pipes were simple carvings, big lumpy bowls, and with push stems of cherry wood or some other kind of wood, or maybe even ivory. And it was only after the movement started going west, towards the better skill sets of the French and the Germans and the Italians, and even the British, when the art object called the Meerschaum Pipe uh, began to surge. And eventually, of course, it came to America in the mid-19th century, and the principal center for carving was New York. I should say New York City, rather than New York. So we don't know about the commencement. We just know that it started somewhere in the mid-18th century, moved west, and as people who are more adept at manipulating various and sundry materials, like ivory and maybe amber, started getting a hold of this material, we started seeing ateliers pop up in, in places like France, Germany, and Italy, and England, who started making the stuff and the demand for these pipes, uh, you know, increased over time, and then you had a thriving industry both overseas and in the United States at about the same time.
0: Now, I mean, we're talking the the 18th century, so yeah, we're, we're going back a ways. What else were people using for pipes back then? Because briar hadn't been discovered or used yet.
1: Correct. Yeah, absolutely correct. Uh, chronologically. In the late 17th century, there's a record of people smoking small clay pipes. In the later period of, of the, I mean, of, in the early period of the 18th century, you started seeing the introduction of both porcelain pipes and early wood pipes in various and sundry woods other than briar, obviously, because briar yeah. the use of briar became popular in the mid nineteenth century. So essentially chronologically clay, then concurrently porcelain and early woods, and then meerschaum, and then briar. And post civil war of course you had also the corn cob. So those are the essential you know mediums that are used for pipes that everybody knows something about.
0: And do you know what meersham was used for prior to pipes?
1: Yeah. Um uh, there, there is documentation that niobium was carved uh, in in the early 17th century and mid 17th century in places like Turkey, or then Constantinople, uh, and they, it was used for jewelry and other objects of art. Okay. So the thread between that and how it became a medium for smoking pipes the linkage is just not there and if it is i've never found it
0: so <laughs> somebody said that's a cute carving can you put a hole in it so i can make a pipe out of it
1: <laughs> yeah that may have been the way it started
0: yeah and and the reason for it moving before the reason for it not becoming popular in a pipe before it came west was because of uh, the the skills and the ability of the western carvers
1: um I'm reluctant to to respond to that because I just don't know. I mean, the best that I can say is that it was an easy material to manipulate, and you had European-trained apprentices going to school, learning to work with wood, to work with alabaster, to work with other mediums. And when they got a hold of this material, they found that it was easy to manipulate, it was easy to carve, and you could do things with it. And I guess some bright guy said, hey, let's try it on, in a pipe. In other words, it's, it's all very thin. And, and you know, um, it's really difficult to nail it down. And I've gone through every, I, you know, I, I speak several foreign languages and I read several foreign languages. It's hard for me to even swear that I'm confident in what I'm saying even today on this phone. Is just, it's just not knowable. Let me put it that way.
0: That is a perfect place for us to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about the uh, size of Meerschauns and some of the rare ones. So stay with us. We'll be back in just a
2: minute.
0: This
3: is Internet Radio. I'm Jeremy Reeves, head blender of Cornell & Deal Pipe Tobacco Company. At Cornell & Deal, we think the best things in life are better with age and we are passionate about creating the best possible pipe tobacco available. Fueled by this passion, we introduced the Cellar Series, a collection of blends like no other. While the blends in this series are ready to smoke now, each one has been meticulously designed to optimize depth and complexity as the tobacco ages in the tin. Currently, the Cellar Series is comprised of Oak Alley, Chenet's Cake, Joie de Vive, Old Grove, and Bourbon Blue, but we will be unveiling new additions to this very special series as time goes on. Pick up a tin to smoke now and save a few for later enjoyment so that you can experience all the richness and subtlety each blend will reveal through the years. Cornell and Deal's seller series, the secret ingredient is time. Contact your local or online retailer for information.
0: We are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show, visiting with uh, fellow Doctor of Pipes Ben Rappaport. Um, okay, so we, we're now now pipes are being made in uh, out of Meersham in the in Western Europe, and, and, and then in New York City. Um, what's the oldest pipe that you know of that you've that you've actually seen or touched?
1: In several of the books that I've written, and in online, one can read about the earliest types coming out of Austria-Hungary, uh, actually before Austria-Hungary, because uh, it didn't become Austria-Hungary until 1873. Uh, but uh, they're crude, they're bas-relief carved, they're, they're clumpy, and, and, and the Germans have a, a unique word for these things. they call called K L O E K L O B E N meaning a lump, like a (laughs) lump of coal, because they're not very artful. Uh, They're large. Sometimes they have these silver wind covers and silver shank bands and push stems, but they're all bas-relief carved, meaning the incision is not deep. And you don't see that kind of skill appearing on pipes until the mid-19th century. So for about 100 years, between 1750 and 1850, most of them came out of out of uh, Budapest, and they were all lumpy, clumpy kinds of things. The mm-hmm. Germans did the same thing for a great number of years. The transition I can't explain as to why it happened or where it started first, but you start seeing what I call phases. You have the lumpy ones coming out of the mid to late eighteenth century early the early nineteenth century, and then you see finesse being applied to this material, where well, you get three-dimensional figures, high-relief carving on the shank or around the bowl. And then at the start of the 20th century, you see you know, the plainies, the simple kinds of pipes that are still being made today, you know, with no carving whatsoever. So it was a three-phased history, if you watch these things. But the earliest ones, I mean, I've seen them. Uh, they're pictured in many books. And you can tell a significant difference between Those that were made early and those that were made later. Now, the question arises, why did they go from bas-relief to high-relief? Or why were they so lumpy-clumpy at the beginning and had such finesse later on? And I think, and that's all I I don't believe, I think that the ones that started carving later were were well-trained in the arts as apprentices and then as professionals uh, after having been schooled. And that's the big difference. In other words, anybody who thought he could manipulate material might have carved something, but he may not have had the skills to execute a Meerschaum pipe with exquisite detail. Uh, And only the later group of people, uh, many of whom came to the United States in the mid-19th century, had been trained in Viennese or in German schools. And it was that skill set that they learned that they applied to this very easily manipulated material. Wow!
0: All right, and on the opposite side of that, I know we we talked in the past about a couple of really special large pieces. Yes. Uh, talk us through those because uh, the one that the one that got me in particular was the one for the uh, I believe it's the Columbus Exposition.
1: Yeah, let me let me go back a little bit too, but that's all, you're right. You are right. There are three that are truly top of the line as far as finesse and size. The first one that was carved for the 1876 exhibition, which was called the Centennial Exhibition in Philadelphia, is a table pipe uh, with four hoses. And I have to stop long enough to tell you where you're going to see a picture of it. You've got to go to... A Facebook site called the Tobacco Pipe Art History. That's one word with the H missing, art history. Yep. And when you access that, you go into one of the many albums that I and a, and a collaborator have posted since 2011 when we started this effort. And if you go into the album called Princely Pipes, you'll see it. It's huge, it's almost two feet high, and it's got <laughs> figures all over the place. And that's the first one that comes to mind. The second one that comes to mind was carved by the DeMuth Company of New York for the Columbia Exposition in Chicago in 1893. And that's the one that you just mentioned, Columbus Coming to America. Unfortunately, that now resides in... (laughs) in a a storage facility in Vienna, Austria. And you can ask me later why, (laughs) because I can explain that. And the third, interestingly enough, was carved by a Boston carver by the name of Gustav Fischer Sr., uh, of what is called the death of Captain Warren at the Battle of Bunker Hill, which is in Charleston, Mass. And... Gustav Fischer saw the painting and carved a likeness of it, his rendition of it, in Meerschaum, which is almost three feet long. It has about 30 characters carved on it. And Uh we know where that one is because it resides in the state of Colorado. And I am preparing an article with images of it for Pipes and Tobacco magazine, and the editor has promised that that article, that substantive article with many images, going to be in the summer issue of 2018. So in all of my years of chasing this stuff down, these are without question the three largest, the three most exquisite pipes that have ever been made. Ironically, there are many thousands of other pipes of smaller size and just as well executed, but they're not huge. These three are the largest I've ever encountered in my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> now, now and the, oh, by the way, and yeah. those other two are also available in the princely pipes album on in, on Facebook in our in our uh, site called the Tobacco Pipe Art History.
0: We will put a uh, link to the Facebook group on the on the show notes here. But uh, let's go back. Why why is the one pipe? Uh, why is it uh, stuck in Austria?
1: Oh, okay. um uh, back in 1957, the American Tobacco Company had a plant in Richmond, and the DeMuth Company, which I mentioned earlier, uh, was, was, the, their collection was purchased by American Tobacco Company, and it was on exhibit in, 19, in the, in the ni- 1950s uh, at the plant in Richmond. The plant closed. It turned over the collection called the half-and-half, half, you know, named after a famous American tobacco company, Pike Tobacco, yeah, turned over to the Valentine Museum in that city. And the Valentine Museum had it on the exhibit until the late 1980s when they contacted me, because I was living in Virginia at the time, and said, we need to come up with some money to restore an antebellum home in Richmond. And the board of directors has decided that we will sell the half-and-half collection. Now, do you know of anybody that might want to buy it? And I contacted uh, the director of the Tobacco Salt and uh, Tobacco Museum in in Tokyo. I contacted the Philip Morris people, which were right across the street in the same (laughs) city, Richmond, because they had a small collection on exhibit. I contacted the uh, curator of the Museum of Tobacco Art and History in Nashville, and I contacted the director of the... Museum in Vienna, Austria. Of the four who showed up, and I walked them through the collection at the museum, only one expressed interest in it, and that was a Dr. Herbert Rupp, who was the curator of the Austrian Tobacco Museum. And the principal reason for having an interest in it was that in in 1992, they were going to celebrate 500 years of tobacco and Columbus. And here's the Columbus pipe sitting right in front of him. Uh, long story short, they made an, op- uh, an offer, and the museum purchased it. Uh, the museum let it go. And there the pipe was, at in October of, of 1992, the centerpiece of the exhibition in Vienna, because I was there for it. And then, in the early 2000s, uh, Gallagher bought uh, a large slice of the Austrian Tobacco Company and decided to storage the collection. <sighs> And they passed that collection off to the Schoenberg Museum in Vienna. And they promised to put all those pipes uh, online in a virtual museum, which they never did do. And then they passed off the collection to uh, the follow-on of Gallagher. And all of that stuff now is resident in three different storage facilities in Vienna. And I hope to be able to look at that collection once again uh, this coming spring or summer when I go overseas to work with the people there about documenting it. So essentially it's moved from the William DeMuth Company, which originally made it for the Columbian Exposition in 1893, to the American Tobacco Company plant in Richmond, to the Valentine Museum in Richmond, to the Vienna Tobacco Museum, and then into storage in two different, you know, from one storage facility to another. And that's where all the stuff sits now, collecting dust. But that's not unusual. This has happened with uh, other pipe museums around the world. They've just shuttered over the years and it has nothing to do with an anti-tobacco movement and has something to do with green-eye shape people at corporate looking at the bottom line. And the best example is that of the uh, museum in Nashville. 10,000 visitors a year, and corporate up in Greenwich, Connecticut said things like, all right, Mr. Curator, what, uh, after, after you know, the budget for acquisitions and and the hiring of people to maintain the collection and the storage and, and the cost of uh, keeping the place open and closed, overhead, What's the payback to us? And there is no answer to that. In fact, there is no answer to that in any museum. So they said, shut it down. And that's how things happen. I mean, not only here, but overseas. So it's not the anti-tobacconists who, you know, to, who picketed in front of these places saying, you know, source of death and, and cancer and all of that. It's the green eye shade people who decide whether a museum will survive or, or not. And that's the, that's been... That's been my track record throughout the world because I've watched all of these places open and close over time.:
0: It's the people that said how many American uh, how many uh, lucky strike cigarettes are we going to sell because we've got this whole place open. but uh, we'll take another break here. when we come back, we'll talk about uh, collecting Meerschaum, and uh, we'll get into some of your, uh, yeah, some of your advice on how to buy Meersham. So stay with us.
3: we'll be back in just a minute. My name is Shane Ireland, and I'm the pipe manager at SmokingPipes.com. It's my job to source and select the absolute best pipes from all over the world. We take collecting seriously, so you should think of us as your team of personal pipe shoppers. When you browse our site and make your selection, the pipe you've picked out has traveled from the maker to our merchandising and quality control department. It was then given to our highly skilled photographers, videographers, and copywriters before being carefully and lovingly packaged by our shipping team. The pipe you see is the pipe you get and it's just the one you've been searching for. Whether you're on the hunt for that next special piece to add to your collection or would simply like a recommendation from our extensive selection of tobaccos, give us a call at 1-888-366-0345, and our friendly experts will be glad to assist you. We are quality. We are experts. We are collectors. We are smokingpipes.com. We are
0: back and still visiting with Ben Rappaport. All right, Ben, uh, we need your advice or your opinion. Um, somebody wants to get started with a couple of good antique meerschaum pieces. How do we tell it's antique? Where do you suggest they go? Are they crazy? Where, you know, just your your opinion, your advice.
1: Okay. Let's start with a bit of philosophy when somebody asked me that question face-to-face. I said, before you invest in the first antique pipe, buy a book. And admittedly, I've written several, but I'm not suggesting that they buy mine. They can buy any book on on antique pipes and learn before you invest. That's always been my philosophy. Learn before you invest, because some people have come up to me and said, Hey, I just started collecting antique pipes and I bought this thing and I paid four hundred dollars for it. What do you think of it? And then and I'm very frank with people, I'm saying it's a piece of crap. <laughs> and why did you and why did you buy it? Well, I didn't know any better. I said, Did you ever bother reading anything about this stuff? <laughs> and no. Well, I said, read before you invest. That's that's the way I, I approach it. I started collecting back in nineteen fifty nine. There were no books on antique pipes in print in any language when I started out. Now I've contributed to the, you know, the lore of pipes, you know, with articles and books. But in the last 50 years it's blossomed and burgeoned. There are many books on this subject. All you have to do is buy at least one, get smart, and then spend your money on pipes. Now, there's a marked difference between whether you want to buy current Turkish-made pipes or antiques. Now, as an appraiser, because I'm trained as one, you have to know that to call it an antique, it has to be at least 100 years old. Now, is that a rule of law? No. In appraising work, you have to do that. Now, the buyer, the prospective buyer, can decide, okay, I'm going to collect a little of both. That's fine. You have a foot in each camp. I've stuck all my years in the field of antiques. How do I know they're antiques? Well, number one, uh, I can tell the difference between Turkish carving and and European-trained carving. I can tell the difference by looking at uh, a particular pipe and seeing if it's balanced. if It is three-dimensional, and what I mean by that is carving all the way around the pipe, not just the front as it sits in its fitted case. I can determine whether or not it's an amber mouth, excuse me, amber mouthpiece. I can tell whether it's bas relief or high relief. Those are some of the determinants of whether it is a new piece or an old piece. When I mean new, I don't mean made yesterday. Turkish carving, uh, Turkish carved meerschaums have come into the country since the mid 1950s. So I'm talking about stuff made even earlier. The height of the premier stuff is somewhere between 1850 and 1925. And the other thing that I I tell people is spend money on one fine piece than, you know, two or three poorly executed pieces. Yep. If you have a limited budget, you know, wait until tomorrow. There'll always be tomorrow. And what I mean by that is I started when I was in the 20s and most of the people I looked up to were 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years old. They're all gone. Now I'm in that group. I'm 82. And I look back and none of the young guys are collecting that stuff, but most of the people that I grew up with are now my age group and they're selling it off or it's going to auction or it's being dispersed privately. And so if you're patient enough, and you have, you know, a modicum of income to spend on a hobby, and you decide you want to collect these things, take your time. There's always tomorrow. That's another adage that I tell people. Don't panic, and I'm, I'm linked up with enough people so I find out who's selling what. And if people contact me and ask, you know, is there anybody selling stuff privately? You know, I'll provide them the email address, introduce them, and they can be on their own about, you know, negotiating a, a buy. Or they can come to me and say, look, this pipe is for sale. Do you think that's a fair price? And I'm willing to give them my opinion, but it's only mine. It's not <laughs> the universal opinion. I just have my peculiar you know, views on what is good and what is bad after seeing thousands of pipes in my travels in Europe and visiting many collectors here in the United States. I shouldn't, yeah, Many, when I started, there are fewer of us today in the country. And there are a few more in Europe. But it's becoming a dying collect a dying collector field. Everybody seems to want to spend five or ten thousand on, you know, a one of a kind briar and there aren't that many people today who are willing to spend five or ten thousand dollars on a unique meerschaum. Because the question is, if if the supply is greater than demand, when I wanna get rid of that ten thousand dollar pipe, who the hell's gonna buy it? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I'd say if you have ten thousand dollars to spend and you can find ten $1,000 pipes. Do that as opposed to one $10,000 pipe. But that's again my individual approach. Others will disagree with me. Now, as a fundamental understanding, uh, both in pipes and tobacco magazines and online, I've written an article called "Oh, Collecting Conundrum." Mission Pipes Past or Mission Pipes Present. It was published in the spring issue of 2006 of Pipes and Tobacco Magazine. It's also online on Pipes and Tobacco Magazine's website under Resources. And under Resources, if you, you scroll down, you'll come up to a thing called uh, Web Extras. And it's been posted there as well. And I provide a comparison of Turkish-made pipes and antique pipes, and walk the reader through the individual characteristics of both classes of pipes and what to look out for in each case. So th- that's that's at least an early start. Now, whether he wants to invest in a book, that's the call of the prospective collector. I've written two that has a focus on Meerschauns. There are several written in Europe that have been translated into English that I can recommend if they contact me. Uh, and you can do a little research online. Some of the material that's out there, that's free, you know, is really um, garbage. <laughs> and and I embarrassingly, I'd hate to tell you this, but but Tinderbox has a, has a a website post that says that Mirsham is the shell of the cuttlefish, <laughs> and that's just what. <laughs> that's that's just one place where someone who doesn't know anything says, well, wait a minute, Tinderbox is a rather large retail chain. They ought to know something because they sell Mearsham pipes. Let's see what the folks at Tinderbox have to say about Mearsham. And it says (laughs) it's the shells, you know, that have fused together of the cuttlefish Fine.
0: (laughs) Why don't they just say it's it's... the horn of a unicorn?
1: (laughs) (laughs) It could be that as well. (laughs) Who the hell knows? I mean, so, my point is, Read to get smart before you invest the first few dollars in a pipe, and then you have to make a decision: do I do I collect a little bit of both—that is, Turkish stuff and and European-made stuff—or do I collect only one of those two categories, or do I collect none of that because it's too expensive for me?
0: <laughs> now let's let, let's shift gears and talk a little bit about modern stuff. And if it's your if it's your opinion that you're about to give us, it's more valued than anybody else's. So. Uh, a listener is primarily, you know, has a briar, has briar pipes and has corn cobs, but has never smoked a meerschaum and wants to buy a good quality meerschaum. What do you suggest they look for out of a current production or relatively recent production pipe, and how can they tell if it's a good quality or not?
1: Whoa. Well, he's- as you know, I think it's come across from this short discussion that I'm partial to antique pipes. Yep. But when I started smoking a pipe, uh, there was a guy that was exporting them from from Turkey called Hayim Pinhas P I N H A S, and I found the pipes fairly decent for the price, and I wasn't concerned about the carving. So if you if you're not interested in, in a car type, or, you know one that's truly outstanding, and you want to spend a reasonable amount of money to determine whether or not you even like smoking a merchum, and maintaining a merchum because it, it requires a little bit more maintenance skills than it does to smoke a briar. It be stain you worry about staining it, worrying about dirtying it, worrying about losing its its uh, its finish, uh, you know, of beeswax then, you know, anything between $50 and $100 for a starter kit would be fine. Uh, you know, I, I knew intimately well Chano Osgainer, which was CAO Meershams out of, out of Nashville, and I know Sam Sermit fairly well, and, you know, he, he's an importer of decent Turkish pipes. But, you know, smoking it and collecting it are two different phases in, 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 in my mind. Uh, I've smoked a mirchim, and, and they're delightful for me. And I saw, you know, I also like when they begin to turn into a honey brown, into a chocolate brown, uh, you know, when the, the t- when the tobacco juices and the tar start bleeding out through this porous material to the surface. But the frustration of most people who have started out smoking a new Turkish mirchim is that they don't handle it well, and you begin to see this mottled finish on the outside and the spotting, because it's not been treated properly and it's not been cared for properly and you fingered it and the, and the wax begins to disintegrate and it stains differently throughout the pipe. As a result of that, you begin to look at it and saying, this is not an attractive piece at the end of the day, for me. That is, you know, to someone looking at it, as opposed to a briar which doesn't you don't see much of a change on the outside. So, you know, smoking it isn't bad. I prefer not to smoke any of mine because they're antique, but I've yeah. occasionally smoked, you know, a modern-day Turkish Meerschaum, and the problem between maintaining or handling an antique Meerschaum and and a current-day Turkish Meerschaum is the finish. In the old days, they used spermaceti and hand-rubbed original beeswax and put on quite a number of coats on an antique meerschaum pipe. And modern Turkish meerschaums, I've been told, go through a bath like an electrolyte you know, laying uh, silver on on copper, you know, ECP as they call it. Electric, uh, electronic, anyway, it's it's a bath that you lay, you run copper through to put a silver plate finish on. That's what they do with meerschaum today. And it's dipped into this bath and it's a thin finish. So if you don't handle it correctly in the heat of the pipe, it begins to to move towards the outer outer edges, and your fingers are stained or your fingers are, are not clean. You begin to stain the pipe, and as the wax wears off, you get this model finish through time, and it's no longer attractive. So you begin to no longer appreciate a modern Turkish pipe when you smoke, but in comparing it to to a, a smoking and breaking in a briar i don't have any problem with it they're not equal in their pleasures but they're both pleasurable to smoke
0: why are some and pipes bu- why are some pipes mar- marked block meerschaum and others aren't
1: well that's question of advertising i guess because <laughs> it's pretty difficult it's pretty difficult to determine once a pipe is finished whether or not it's block meersham or a composite uh the composite concept started about the same time as the use of Meerschaum as a as a pipe in the mid 19th century. You'd see the, the shavings and the residual you know scraps of Meerschaum that they fuse together and make you know a composite material uh, that that became a pipe as well and the difference would be determined when you smoke it because in a block mission pipe you know the bleeding of the of your juices and your tars uniformly provide a finish you know a uniform finish on the outside of the pipe in a block mission because it's made up of pieces and parts it begins to to take on different finishes as you smoke it now the question is after you know you've got a layer or two of of uh, beeswax on it, you have to ask yourself how will I know whether it's a it's a composite or it's a block and you'll only determine that when you smoke it that's when it reveals itself as to what it really is <laughs> so you have press mission a block you know or or, or press mission as its called versus block mission. and I don't know whether or not in, in today's Turkish exports, whether they mark their cases as being blocked or, 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 or pressed, because I haven't looked at these things lately, but I'm assuming everything that comes out of Turkey is essentially block. And it was the Germans that started this concept of using uh, pressed mircham as a finished pipe, taking the scraps off the floor. Putting, combining with other, other stuff like potato paste paste and making again another pipe because they took advantage of whatever was available to them and, and turned it into another product. But I think most of it is block. And, and unfortunately, you can't see this block stuff anymore because sometime in the early 70s, the government of Turkey said, no more exporting of the raw material. Only finished pipes leave the state. And that's essentially what's happening here. But what I don't understand is that there are at least two European meerschaum pipe carvers, one in France and one in Denmark, who are carving. So the question arises, where the hell are they getting their stuff? Where are they getting their raw material? I don't know. And then you have another source in Tanganyika. They have deposits, and so there are pieces coming out of Tanganyika, and I think the trade name is Kiko, at least one of them is. And they're exporting finished pipes, which means somewhere they're getting the raw material. And a couple of years ago, I was at the Chicago show, and there was an exhibit of Chinese-made Meerschaum pipes. <laughs> Not very attractive. I don't want to say anything about China, uh, but uh, uh, you know, I I don't know whether that stuff was raw material coming out of Turkey. I don't believe there are any mines in China. And it may have been some ersatz material they put together to make it look like Meerschaum. I don't know how many people bought that stuff. Uh, I passed by the table once or twice during the weekend of the show, but I, I, I had no contact with these people. I didn't interview them, and I, they've never reappeared. So I, I don't know what's going on with the Chinese Meerschaum pipes business. <laughs> All
0: right, let's go. Let's go back to the antique stuff because you mentioned a name. Uh, early on, and uh, and I know it's a kind of important name in the meerschaum business, but I believe it was Gustav Fischer, who is. Correct. Is he kind of the father of the American meerschaum pipe business?
1: Uh, not quite. Uh, I wish it were so, because he's one of my favorites. <clears throat> Excuse me. And only because, as I said, in October, I visited. Uh, revisited the uh, the the uh, the Battle of Bunker Hill pipe because it's resident now in in uh, in Colorado, and I'm writing a feature story as I said earlier that'll talk about it. But I have to be totally honest. There are other guys in this country who did some great work. I'll name them for you: Koldenberg, Kaldenberg, K A L D E N B E R G, New York uh deMuth everybody pretty much everybody knows the symbol WDC William DeMuth Company, New York. A guy named Gustav Steer, S-T-E-H-R, New York, I Hamburger, New York, Cucal Kuchera, New York, the Fishers of of Orchid Park, New York, who put out some outstanding stuff. And Gustav Fisher Sr. of Boston. And I have to put out the word senior because he had a son, Gustav Fisher Jr who was more expert on making briar, or carving briar, than carving meerschaum. And they worked concurrently, father and son, in the city of Boston. I like Gustav Fischer Sr. for another reason. All these other companies I mentioned earlier got international fame and acclaim. They competed in European exhibitions and in American exhibitions throughout, throughout the 19th century and early 20th century. Gustav Fischer was nothing more than an employee of the Ehrlich Company of Boston. When I was growing up, I saw most of the Fisher pipes that were on exhibit and for sale when I visited the Ehrlich store when it was on Washington Street in the city, but prior to that time, uh, the Ehrlich store was in another part of the city. Long story short, all these other companies had international claim and international fame, And Gustav Fischer just carved for the Ehrlich Company, and the pipes were sold in the city. And it's unfortunate that most of the attention in in the press is about these other companies. Gustav Fischer got not much press, except during the period of the early 1900s, when he exhibited the Battle of Bunker Hill Pipe in the store. And beyond that, the history pretty much goes blank. Now... The the pipe that I, I visited in, in October, the Battle of Bunga Hill pipe, uh, I managed to convince the family to put it on exhibition in uh, 2003 at the Brandywine River Museum, and you can read about that online. Uh, and then it went back into storage, and then people passed from the family, and it ended up with the great-grandfather's son uh, I mean <laughs> great the gentleman is the great is the great grand great grandson of Gustav Fischer senior, and fortunately for me, he resides in Colorado and we renewed our acquaintanceship last year <laughs> and I saw it yet, but what I learned there is that many of the pipes that Gustav Fischer carved that were never for sale or never exhibit in, in Ehrlichs stayed within the family. he made them for the family members, and I saw. <laughs> a huge amount of truly outstanding antique pipes that are now in the hands of one of the family members. Wow. And and the best part about it is when I entered the door, he said, welcome back. And by the way, nothing's for sale. They're, <laughs> staying, within the, they're staying within the family until the, my offspring and the offspring of other relatives of, of Gustav Fischer Sr. decide they don't want him anymore
0: good for him
1: so yeah that's right that 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 was the that was the introduction i had to this gentleman named bob because that's <laughs> about all i'll say about him i'll mention him of course in the article but i'm going to expose to the subscribers of the magazine many of the pipes that gustav fischer senior carved solely wholly and totally for the family and not for resale in Ehrlich's store And the other thing that's been online and in the press is they said that Gustav Sr. was as as adept in handling briar. And I never found a briar pipe made by Gustav Sr. until I visited this gentleman in Colorado. He's got one of them. And it's exquisite. And that's one of the the pictures that will appear in this article. It's the first time in my entire life I've got, you know, in photo form, a, a, a briar pipe carved by Fisher Senior because the son was quite good at carving briar pipes, but most of them were fairly plain, you know, smooth finishes. Here's one from his father that I now see, and we're talking, let's see, father died in the late night. grandfather died in the 1930s. Almost 100 years later, I'm seeing a briar pipe in pristine condition with a family member for the first time in my life. Wow. That's been a, an all-time first for me.
0: All right, let's wrap this up with uh what books or research are you working on now and what books of yours are readily available that we can go out and purchase right away.
1: Okay. Uh for the listeners who are unfamiliar with me, I write a regular column now for Pipes and Tobaccos magazine. And if, you know, you search through several of the issues or contact corporate, they may be able to tell you, you know, which articles I publish that may be of interest to the prospective collector. If he contacts me, I can provide the same information. Uh, of the several books I put out, um, I point to Collecting Antique Uh It was published by Schiffer in 1979, and then in 1999, um, called Collecting Antique Mershims. There are several other good books, not just my own, that I can recommend called one is called uh, Our Pipe Smoking Forebears, published in nineteen ninety-four by a gentleman named Ferenc, F-E-R-E-N-C, Lavardi, L E V A R D Y. Uh, it was published originally in, in Hungarian and then translated into English and available. If they can't find it have them contact me and I might be able to find a copy for them. The other one is an exhibition at the the 2000th anniversary of, uh, of the thousandth anniversary, I'm sorry, of the Hungarian of the Hungarian nation. The Hungarian National Museum published a book called The History of the Hungarian Pipe Maker's Craft.
2: Huh.
1: And that's an exquisite book that shows oh, obviously, principally, only pipes carved by Hungarian pipe carvers. Yeah. There's a gentleman in Portugal, his name is João J-O-A-O, Martins, M-A-R-T-I-N-S, who published a book called Mearsham's Pipes at eBay, 1999-2010. is published by Blurb.com. And it has a pictorial account of all the antique pipes from that those 11 years uh, sold on eBay and the prices that went with them. So there's a good foundation for people to see, what are people paying for Mearsham Pipes now? Well, at least up through 2010. So that book can be available from Blurb.com. I don't don't know what the price is nowadays. And another book that I did in 1990, 1990, uh, I assisted in 1990, is called Museum of Tobacco Art and History, Meerschaum Masterpieces. It was published by the Museum in Nashville, if they, do, if they own a computer and want to do online research, they can find an article that I wrote uh, for Southeastern Antiquing and Collecting Magazine in September 2014 called Collecting Antique Meerschaums Really Regal Pipes. And then an article in the South Florida Opulence Magazine Fall 2014, Objet d'Art, the French term for objects of art, with form and function, Meerschaum Pipes. Um, There are other articles, and the easiest way to do all of this is to have someone contact me, have them dump a question on me uh, regarding anything I've said this morning, or uh, looking for source material, get smart, and I'm more than willing, more than willing, to provide that information for them. Uh, There is another article, (coughs) excuse me, that's uh, on the PNT website called the Great Divide. You are what you collect, and again, I walk the reader through the decisions as to whether or not you collect contemporary pipes or you collect antique pipes. But again, I, I have no idea how many articles I've done for and Tobacco since it got on, you know, since it was uh, released in 1996. But anybody anybody that talks to me, you know, via email. I'm more than willing to share any of this stuff.
0: What is your email address that you want them to reach out to
1: you at? Yeah, Ben, B E N, seven zero, G R A Y, at Gmail.
0: We'll put a link to that in there, too. Ben, this has been wonderful. It's always great talking to you. And, uh, yeah, I'll just wrap it up with saying, you know, again, thank you for everything that you're doing for our little hobby.
1: Oh, you're more than welcome. It's my pleasure as well to talk to you and share what I know. Uh, I don't hold anything close to my chest like some people do. If I don't disseminate the word, if I don't get the word spread, then I've not done my job.
0: Well, it's been a master class, and I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, just thanks again and keep doing it.
1: My pleasure, Brian. Take good care.
0: We'll be back in just a minute. <laughs>
4: What are you looking for in a pipe? Is it the quality of aged briar? Is it a certain shape or finish? Maybe it's the sound engineering that ensures an effortless, smooth draw with each and every puff. That's exactly the kind of pipe Savinelli has delivered for generations now. With such a variety of shapes, finishes, and sizes, it's easy to find something that fits your sensibility and style. Just this year, we've expanded our lineup to include the Bianca, the Lancelotto, the 2015 collection, and the final installment in the Leonardo da Vinci line, the Vitruvio. For a bolder style, try our more colorful 2015 editions as well. The exotic cashmere, the sultry Licoricea, and the striking Archibaldino Red. So whatever you're looking for in a pipe, know there's a Savinelli waiting for you. Contact your local or online retailer to find your Savinelli today.
0: This is internet radio well? How's that for a whole bunch of information on the history of Meersham pipes? And uh, do check out Ben's uh, Facebook page. It's Tobacco Art History. We'll put a link in the uh, on the show page to that. And if you have any questions, email them. Don't don't email me about that stuff because you you I'm lost. Yeah, I'm not I'm not near the expert. So. Email Ben if you want to learn more about Meerschaum Pipes um, by request for music. So uh, on uh, PipesMagazine.com, there was a request for more Donald Duck Dunn. And uh, let me tell you, I think we talked about it before, but the people that Duck Dunn played with are... Uh, it. I mean, there's just about every album possible in the 60s, 70s, and 80s that he was on uh, from Muddy Waters to Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers uh, he was with Stevie Nicks for a couple of albums uh, just a ton of people including Leo Sayer which I'll excuse him for that Uh, But then earlier on, uh, or later on, he played with Jerry Lee Lewis when when Jerry Lee was out traveling early on in in Duck Dunn's career. He played with both Albert and Freddie King. Well, this one that I found was, uh, I thought it was a little extra cool. It's uh, Eric Clapton because, yeah, Duck Dunn was the uh, bass player for eric clapton for one two three four five six uh s- yeah six albums six studio albums and uh and a best of uh this one's called ain't going down it's eric clapton with uh, duck dunn on bass And, of course, it was Donald Duck Dunn that said the uh, famous uh, goat urination line in the movie The Blues Brothers, where he played the bass. So, want to learn more about Donald Duck Dunn, go to Wikipedia. They've got, not only do they have a page on him, but they've got a page dedicated to his uh, discography. So, uh, just a prolific musician. Alright, rant time next Boy. Cowboy. I'm pretty sure I've done this one before, so I'm just going to say this is my annual plea to manufacturers and retailers. All right, recently there was a wine store going out of business here in the greater Charlotte area and went over there and they had great, you know, 30% off everything. So we went walking around and looking. Well, if you're looking at a bottle of wine and all it tells you is where it's from and what type of wine it is, that doesn't give me much information. Tell me more about it. Tell me, is it full-bodied? Is it medium? Tell me what little flavors or essences I'm going to get out of it. Yes, I know I can look it up on my smartphone, but when you're standing in a store with a thousand options in front of you, do you really want to pull up a smartphone and look it up? No. Retailers do the same thing. If you want to sell stuff, uh, put up a little description of it. Tell us what it's going to be like. Especially if you don't have anybody around that you can find or and it's it's going to be impossible for everybody to know each wine anyway. So put up the little description cards. Uh, Recently I've been on a gin buying uh, binge and uh, you know the same thing for you uh, gin manufacturers give the retailers some information give the consumers some information yes i could look it up on my smartphone and stand there in the store and read about it but i don't have that time when i'm standing in a store that's got a lot of booze to look at same thing with pipe tobacco most of us are lucky enough to either have an online retailer or a local store where somebody's knowledgeable but if you're printing out a, if you're putting your tobacco in a tin Give us a little description about it. All right, there you go. Okay, save that one for next year, too, until they've all fixed it. Uh, Remember, new shows go up every Tuesday night at 8 p.m. Eastern time, and they stay up for eternity or until, I don't know, for a long time. Um, All 280 shows are available to listen to right now on Pipes Magazine, on iTunes, Stitcher, uh pod kicker tune in uh pod bean i don't know all these pod things but uh check them all out share the pipes magazine radio show with all your pipe smoking friends and uh let them know how much you enjoy it uh questions comments post them on the pipes magazine radio show page next week i'll get caught up on the mailbag i promise so with that i want to say an especially big thank you to ben Rappaport for uh coming on and talking about mirshams again and uh, prepping for the prepping for my questions and uh, thank you all for tuning in until next time
2: Happy to you. He's fun. He's fun. He's fun. He's fun. He's Who cares about the clouds when we're together? Just ah. sing a song and think about sunny weather. Happy train.